This week on Hacker in the Fed, new cybersecurity labels proposed by the U.S. government could help us buy our new devices. An employee exposes thousands of intelligence and defense employees. Google may be restricting internet access to some employees to reduce their cyber attack risk. A hacker infects his own computer. And Google says an Apple employee found a zero day but didn't report it. And we answer listener questions about our phones getting searched and email encryption. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now I'm a founding partner at the firm Naxo. I'm joined as always by my friend, Hector Monsiger. Hector, like I said, is a friend, podcast co-host, and a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Uh, our stories collided in June 2011 when I arrested Sabu and convinced him to work along with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, cybersecurity expert, and like I said, friend. Hector, how are things going? I am great. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing doing well. I first have to start off with the show with thanking the audience. Audience, thank you. Um, we announced that HackerInTheFed.com went live with merchandise last week, and the site has been blowing up. Um, ever since the show went up on Thursday, we've getting a ton. You've getting a ton of orders. People are really loving the t-shirts, the hoodies, especially. People love the hoodies. So, what? really, really a big, big thank you to the whole audience out there. Wow, that that is heartwarming. Big shout out to the audience. Big shout out to all of you guys for coming through. That is great, man. I'm super excited about walking around someplace and seeing somebody wearing a hacker in the Fed t-shirt. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna blow me away. Well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to sign a couple of those, man. Um, some, people don't want us to ruin their cool. shirts. Now on the inside, you know, yeah. you can save it for the future. Maybe one of us will become like super rich and it could like, you know, I don't know, put put it on eBay or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't gotten any uh, any requests for signed ones to be sent out to people, so they 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 want them unsigned and uh, and sent out and. Uh, uh, keep them clean, but yeah, super excited to be walking around and seeing somebody wearing one. Hopefully, you know it, they they treat them with respect and they don't become uh, car rags or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, they would make great car rags. If that's what you want to do. They would. Yeah. So um, no, but that's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear. By the way, has anyone hacked the site yet? I mean, it's only been a week, but come on. Uh, well, I am asking them not to, um, out of the respect <laughs> for us. I do not want to do incident response onto our own website. Um, so that doesn't sound pleasant. I'll probably, I would just let it die. Just let it die on the vine. Oh yeah. 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 But yeah, well, no, no, our audience is a bit good, man. We get really good emails. Um, mm -hmm. hardly ever any real negative feedback. I mean, I don't know if that's because our audience just is so nice or if it's because we don't make any mistakes, but you know. The really good interactions. People love the show. Um, you know, I send you over a lot of the, the ones that shout out to you. And, you know, so people are doing great, man. I, I really like this. Uh, you and I are getting more comfortable. Um, the audience is sending in great questions, really kind of, you know, pushing us on coming up with ideas. 
cybersecurity news this happening every week so you know the show's really rolling i'm, I'm excited about it good uh, good audience interaction you know a lot of feedback on people you know using saying they want more banter from us so so i love it yeah i mean you know i i tell you back when we first started this is this concept right i mean we talked about it for a minute and i think one of the concerns we had was like does anyone really want to hear us you know like do they want to hear me talk shit and then you just you know whatever um so I'm glad that that worked out. I'm glad that we we, we pulled the trigger on it. I mean, big shout out to uh, the, the folks that are supporting us, and of course, uh, you for riding along with me, man, and working working together with us, you know, working together uh, in general to make this happen. No, it's been fun, and you know, it's, you know, you and I talk, have talked these talks already. So just to record it, and so everybody else can hear our conversation, it's good. Um, that's right. You know, we got to clean up our language a little bit, and there's some su- things we don't talk about on what well, the records on, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, we getting there little by little. How was your week? Anything exciting? Oh man, it was super busy. I'll tell you. Let me let me give you guys a breakdown so you guys know what's going on in the days of Hector. Right. So, I think Monday started off with a bunch of meetings, and these meetings are usually like kickoff calls, uh, communicate with clients that are asking questions about. Hey, so you have this pen test report. I just want to give you an update. Some of these assets that we gave you weren't necessarily our assets and or we wanted you just to remove the assets from the report. Okay, cool. And then others are potential partnerships. I have companies hit me up. They want to talk about, you know, to demo their product and check that stuff out. Cool. But then the rest of the week, ladies and gents, has been pen testing and nonstop pen testing. Internal networks, crown jewels, red team objectives, it's been a it's been a ride. Sounds like fun. My week was mostly an expert report. I'm uh, I'm working on an expert report on insider threat attack uh, on a oh. company out in California. So it's, wait, uh, wait, what'd you say? What 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 was the keyword there? Insider oh. threat 2023, oh. the year of the insider threat. <laughs> I know you can't talk about that stuff, but hopefully one day you can give us some takeaways from those from those kind of stories. You know, being general is uh, yeah. obviously vague yeah. and all that. But yeah, insider threat stories always interesting to me because. There's always the mindset, from at least from the attacker's perspective. It's like, well, I work for a company. They make a billion dollars a year. I'm getting 60000 Can I get a piece of that? And, of course, their methodology is always the dumbest ones. I feel like they, they're so obvious. Well, the ones we hear about, the ones that get away with it we yes. never hear about, their methodology must be pretty good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, we got a story today, a follow-up story about an insider threat. So we'll continue oh. that theme. Okay. Awesome. So... All right. So again, audience, thanks so much. You know, and those that haven't gone out, hackerinthefed.com, get your merchandise out there. You know, really cool stuff. And uh, I think there's a place for custom orders. Um, also, international shipping. We we can handle it anywhere you guys are at. Um, I got a my, my person that's making all the merchandise can handle shipping them anywhere. So it's good. All right, Hector, first story. White House teams with Amazon, Google, Qualcomm, and cybersecurity labels for gadgets. So now the U.S. government's going to tell us which gadgets are safe and not safe. Uh-oh. Hold on a second. Uh-oh. Let's not start off that way. We're getting a little political right out of the chute. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is an interesting story. I, I think that for the most part, you and I are very similar. At least we agree on a lot of things, especially like the free markets and being able to access whatever that's available to the market and not having government intervention for the most part, right? I think we could, we're both on the same page. A quality product is going to bubble to the top. I mean, if it's if it's good and secure, and you know that's the best one, then that you know the cheapest value. Uh, I mean, the cheapest cost, but the best value. You know, that's how capitalism works. That that product is going to going to you know 
outlive the rest of the competition. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But then from, at least from my perspective, and this is where this story gets interesting, and we're about to get into details in a moment, but I think that um, it would be nice in some way, somehow, if there was a way so that new products that came to market, especially smart devices, if there was some sort of recognition that, hey, they follow some sort of security framework and or the firmware was audited by some third-party vendor, not the government, right? Now, do I agree with the labels? I don't care about the labels. But I would love to know that if I purchase something from a company that's up and coming, especially, and they just came out with a really cool product and, you know, I've just paid, a, you know, 50 bucks for it or 100 bucks for it. I'm, I have to connect it to my network. It would be nice to go back and reference some sort of report that says, yeah, this is our due diligence. This is what we did. Well, let's give okay. some facts to the audience before we get too okay. deep there. So, so right. the U.S. government's proposed and the new label is coming out for consumers for smart, op- smart applications and fitness trackers and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of like the energy efficient labels that we see on devices. Mm-hmm. When you go by like an air conditioner or a dishwasher, it shows you how sure. efficient it is. Um, and so the plan is to have a voluntary label program in effect next year and already signed on is Amazon, Best Buy, Google, LG Electronics, Logitech, Samsung, and a bunch more um, that are going to do this. And they're going to receive the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark, um, where mm. companies have followed cybersecurity standards set by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, for cybersecurity mm. for their products. And so you, you're pro this. Are you going to be, you're going to see the this um, U.S. Cy- cyber trust mark, and you're going to see two products next to it. One of them has the product, the, the mark, and one of them doesn't. Are you going to be drawn into by the one with the mark? Well, that's a great question, and I'll be honest with you. That is a great it's, question. I would, <laughs> I mean, I would, I would consider it, right? I would consider it. But again, the label is not as important to me. Rather, I would like to see some sort of, you know, you know, when you buy a product, they have a little like a little uh, product sheet, maybe a little booklet. It would be nice if there's references in there to maybe uh, uh, some sort of report or some sort of uh, maybe policy. Hey, we're following this this framework, or hey, in coordination with CISA, we have followed these steps. I would like to see that. That would that would help sway me as a consumer, rather than just buying something blankly and just throwing it on my network and, and expanding my attack service. And by the way. Regardless of how you tackle this, you know, you are going to uh, expand your attack surface, regardless if they're following on this framework or they've done an audit. Um, that's besides the point. Would I blindly trust this stamp, Chris? No. So you want to know what's behind the stamp. You want to know the procedures and protocols that the, these devices have been tested before they get the stamp. Absolutely. And I'm fully aware that this initiative could potentially increase the over, overall security of smart devices. I get that. It could potentially which i'm fine with my problem is that the 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 mark is perverted to the point where you know people are buying these stamps and versus really going Uh, through the procedures like i don't want something to be falsely identified as a secure product because they paid you know xyz dollars um and you know it's falsely you know lulls us into a sense of security i completely agree you know especially if that's the way this U.S. cyber trust mark is going to be deployed. Well, just my cynical side says, you know, U.S. regulatory, it goes that way a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, cynicism is fine. You know, what I would love to see more, and and maybe I should, maybe after this, I'll probably start inquiring with with folks involved as to what their methodology is going to be and what kind of requirements are, are involved here. What we're seeing from the articles and stories that are coming out on it is like, yeah, 
you know, this is what they want to do. This, these are the companies that may be involved, right? Um, I'm, I'm surprised Best Buy is in there because they're not a manufacturer, right? Um, so, like, there's, there's, there's certain things here that don't, that don't really click 100%. Um, and I think we need more information. Maybe we're at that early stages. That, hey, this is an idea. Let's start coming together with a standard and then put a stamp on it. So maybe it's at the place where we could get involved and, you know, hey, like, this is what we want. We should, you know, testing these devices, you know. Is it full reverse engineering? You know, maybe. Mm. I don't know. You know, they, there's some... Uh, proprietary information for that, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's a tough standard, you know, and, and let me ask you this, let me ask the other ways, like if these, now there's an electronics thing out there and it has the U.S. cyber trust mark on it, does that make it more of a target for hackers? Absolutely, because they would look at it like a front door, especially if they're able to identify vulnerabilities in those products and they know that, uh, you know, people are going to uh, purchase these products because the stamp is there, even if it's like a five percent uh, jump or, or you know over non-stamped products, um, absolutely they'll find vulnerabilities in that and, and and try to exploit as much as they can, which is going to call into question this entire system in the first place, right? And and I just want to kind of point out for the audience that the initiative wouldn't address vulnerabilities in existing devices, and the fight in devices that actually meet high cybersecurity standards can still be vulnerable. It goes back to what you just said. If users don't follow good, you know, uh, uh, follow good security practices, it's it's really not much other than just a stamp and label. If you have a weak password on something, just you know, that's not yeah. the stamp isn't going to fix that or or, or, or do any sort of way. Uh, one thing in the article that I was kind of thrown off was it said that NIST will also take the initiative to create cybersecurity requirements for cyber for customer routers by the end of the 2023. I would start with the routers. The routers control connectivity of all these devices. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think they should start at routers and work their way out. I, you know what? That's a good point. I think starting at routers probably makes the most sense, and then they could just start moving to firmware or whatever else, other components, maybe supply chains. You know, it 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 brings up some questions. So, for example, let's say that this this uh, U.S. Cyber Trust Mark goes beyond just like, hey, we're following, quote unquote, wink, wink, we're following your standards. Can we get the stamp on, on our product? And it's more like, you know, they have to follow policy. They have to provide some sort of evidence that they're following the policy. Maybe S-bombs or software bill of materials, right? Because if, if, if you're providing a product with a software bill of materials uh, within reason so that it doesn't expose your IP, right, um, then we can start looking at potential supply chain attacks in your in your devices, assuming um, we get that. And I have to say, finally, on this topic here, and I, I think it's, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. While it's promising, the effectiveness of the initiative will depend on a variety of factors, and it's not a complete solution, uh, not at all. But I'm hoping that it kind of starts the conversation about the kind of products that are being introduced to markets. Okay. Um, when you look at some of these 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 botnets that are kind of propagating and they're you know they're essentially acting as worms, you know a lot of what they're targeting right now as we speak, without without kind of exposing the specific vendors, is appliances and products. So you know, I'm sure if some of you have read this in the news, maybe Infosec Twitter or Infosec Mastodon or whatever it is you're following. You're probably seeing a lot of these these um, these appliances have been compromised right now, um, and so I think this is, a, this is a great conversation to have moving forward. How are we going to handle new devices moving forward? Is that going to be such a thing? And will this this new cyber trust mark system or label 
would it actually improve the situation at all? So the next story, Hector, is Google exposes intelligence and defense employees' names in virus total leak. So hundreds of individuals working for defense intelligence agency globally had their names and email addresses accidentally exposed by a single employee at Google's malware scanning vi- uh, platform, VirusTotal. And so for those that don't know what VirusTotal is, it's sort it's an you know aggregates antivirus products and online scans engines, and it's sort of a, an online service that let organizations upload suspected malware, and then it's checked against you know what's there. So it's a repository for, for security reachers to say, hey, I get in this file. Has anybody else seen this before? And if you have, what does it do? Yeah, it's a great resource. I've used it in the past. I know a lot of malware researchers, defenders, um, folks from all you know flavors, basically, um, have used VirusTotal, either to scan a potential payload to see if it's a malware or not, um, or to document the discovery of a new uh, malware strain, and then, of course, finally, collaboration. I mean, that's where virus total really wins, the collaboration within the community. Yeah, so if you were looking for, like, football fans, I would go to a stadium uh, during a football game, and there'd be all the fans. If I'm looking yeah. for cybersecurity researchers, virus total would be the place I would go to, and knowing that everyone that associates with that website is a security researcher and looking for information on in cybersecurity. So yeah. this Google employee accidentally uploaded a list of 5,600 uh, rep- repository customers to the site mm. um, and identified individuals associated with U.S. Cyber Can- Command, uh, National Security Agency, the NSA, Pentagon, mm. FBI, military, um, United Kingdom, Ministry of Defense, uh, and then ministries of uh, defense in all these in countries, Germany, Japan, Lithuania, Israel, Turkey, France, Estonia, Poland, uh, all over the world. So kind of an exposure of not only, you know, cybersecurity researchers, but also, you know, people within governments that necessarily maybe don't want their email address out there because now we have the potential for a large-scale phishing attack against security researchers, which we've done quite a few stories on here, Hector, about the, you know, you know security researchers being phished and targeted by specific country, nation-state actors. Look, at the end of the day, and I think, I think judging from the organization's responses thus far on this story, you know, they, they're considering it low risk. And for the most part, having an email address is low risk because as the attacker, now you have to create, um, you know, an attack methodology and, and you have to kind of, uh, or rather utilize one, uh, come up with all sorts of clever different techniques, uh, spear phishing and um, out of band attack methods. And, you know, basically the point is having an email address is just, you know, it's step zero, right? Everything else comes after um, and it's up to the organization's security personnel to, to have their awareness, to have the technical controls in place, to, to mitigate some of that stuff. Um, but still, it is problematic, right? I mean, the incident itself underscores the importance of strong data handling and privacy practices, even within organizations that specialize in cybersecurity like Google, right? You know, Google has since released an apology um, you know they they they're completely understanding of of the the consequences of of that uh, of that accidental leak accidental leak, um, and I'm sure the the employee himself or itself rather is, is is you know it's not too happy with the outcome of this. I mean mistakes happen. Have you seen the list of 5600? Have you gotten your hands on it? No, I haven't seen it. Uh, maybe if we do, maybe that's 5600 email addresses that we should send a link to Hacker and the Fed. That'd be interesting. <laughs> you know what? There you go. <laughs> that's a good idea. Get some new listeners. No, I'm definitely not saying use those emails to send the links to anyone. Don't, please don't do that. I, I like these stories, not because of what happens, right? I don't, I don't want to admonish 
or point my finger at Google or the employee. That's not that's not the point. And this is why I've also said in the past, I have no problem making mistakes. If I'm wrong, I'd rather know that I'm wrong so I can learn from that mistake or learn from that from that error. But really, this incident really serves as a reminder that even cybersecurity organizations are not immune to human error. Okay. And that robust procedures and technical controls are necessary to prevent future incidents. How many stories have we done about cybersecurity guys getting targeted and getting attacked? GitHub, the, the hack of that. Um, yeah. A couple other security firms we've done stories on where, you know, they're just going after, you know, the security engineers and, and they click on the link. Well, you know, I have to give some background here. When I was the bad guy, and Chris, I think I told you this early on, and I th- you mean, I'm not sure, what you, I forgot what your response was. But I said that some of the, the easiest targets to hack or compromise are security p- professionals, um, mainly because, you know, they may be aware, um, they may have, or rather, they might have heightened awareness, they may have technical controls in place, um, they may have an understanding of what an attack path might look like that may target them, right? And they may have, for the most part, a situational awareness. But once you're able to circumvent all of that and you get them in a way that they did not expect, you know, it's 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 probably easier than dealing with someone that doesn't have an expanded attack service. Someone like a like a like a grandpa that just signs in on the internet once a week to check his emails, right? Um, you know, a security professionals online twenty four seven, constantly learning, constantly reading, constantly clicking on links and experimenting. And somewhere along the lines, an attacker is sitting there waiting. No, it's true. It's a it's a good point that the the attack service is much much broader on on these guys because we're online so much. Yeah, 100%. So I don't think this next story is related, um, but maybe. You never know. Uh, <laughs> Google is restricting internet access to some employees to reduce the cyber attack risk. So Wait, hold on. Maybe the guy that uploaded <laughs> maybe the guy that uploaded that file is part of this pilot program. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're going to cut your internet off. So good luck. So so yeah, new pilot program for Google where some of the employees will be restricted to internet-free desktop PCs. So the company originally selected more than twenty five hundred employees to participate, uh, but I guess they got some feedback from the, those employees, uh, sure. and they revised it to a uh, pilot program that allows you to opt out. So you have to decide. So. They're going to uh, disable internet access on select desktops uh, with the exception of internet-based tools and Google-owned websites like Google Drive and and Gmail. Mm. So um, uh, they also said that some employees will have no root access, meaning they won't be able to run administrative commands or do things like install software. I thought that was pretty common. I've worked at companies that I don't have root access. The FBI. I didn't have root access to my machine. Well, I mean, look, it, it's it really is about access control and your policies that enforce that. You know, why would a junior developer have root access over environments that they probably should not have access to? So, it's interesting that that's like that's here, like, like that's a bullet point, like that's a main point as part of this pilot. Like, no, we're also removing your root access. You don't need that. But, I mean, that's a concept that's been around for a long time. Why now is it just something that, that Google's come, you know, reigning back in? Uh, I- am I missing something? Why, like... I'll be honest with you, Chris. I've done pen testing or red team work, or I've done all sorts of jobs for a- any possible company you can imagine. You know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar, small mom and pop, you know, startup as SaaS products. I've, I've explored and broken into a ton of systems. And here's what I learned. Many of these organizations have the CIO and the CISO develop policies. And many of the tools that enforce those policies, they do exist. 
Are they actually enforcing those policies? That's another question. Um, it's very easy to look at something like convenience and have that trump over policy. So I think that this is kind of like Google saying, okay, we probably have you know entire uh, libraries full of policies in our organization, and there's still developers walking around with root access. That's an issue. So we're going to address it with this pilot program. At least that's that's the way I'm looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand not having root access on your machine. I don't know. I don't know if I could work without the internet, though. Sometimes you just got to take 30 seconds, two minutes. You got to yeah. take a break and look away from something. 100%. They're going to go back to Minesweeper. Remember Minesweeper? <laughs> yeah. Um, or the pinball. Remember that old pinball machine game? That yeah, cool. that was good. So, Or the, the snake game on the old phones before they were smartphones. There you go. Yeah, so yeah. People go back to doing that. <laughs> big, big comeback on that. 100%, man. I, no, you're right. In fact, if you go online, if you go to like YouTube and type in dumb phone, there are so many different communities that are bringing back the dumb phone. I'm talking about like the Nokias, you know? There's new products in 2023 coming out that are minimized phones. They may have some internet activity, but for the most part, they are like 1990s cell phones. Uh, fascinating stuff. Why? So now, why is that even a thing? Well, aside from the privacy concerns that people have, right, there's also the minimization, or the at least the attempt to, of, of attack surface. Because remember, the smarter your phone, the more attack uh, capabilities are, are kind of open um, and, and kind of lingering, waiting for you to press the wrong button or get, or, or get the wrong text message. You know what I mean? Yeah, people love nostalgia too, though. I mean... True. Lo love looking back. They, they're thinking the times were much better back then. They weren't. They weren't better. They were just different. Wait, can I ask you something? Yes. I've been doing research on this field specifically. Okay. And I found a company that sells beepers, bro. What do you get really? a beeper with me? Uh, yeah. At one point, I carried two beepers. What? Yeah, I was a drug dealer. <laughs> me too but you know what's the fun part about beepers I, I was not a drug dealer no i had a work beeper and a, per, oh. and a personal beeper in high school that's what when i was in high school from <laughs> i was in high school from 95 to 98 uh we only have we okay. only had three years of high school my junior high was ninth grade um okay but uh yeah that, that was the time when it was cool to have beepers and for some reason parents allowed kids to have beepers yeah, man. I mean, those were the days, I'll tell you. But let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. Did you know that beepers don't have a uh, GPS chip inside of them? No, really? Yeah. So, essentially, a beeper is, uh, depending on the network you're using. As far as I know, there's still, there's still two major networks in the U.S. For the audience out there, if you guys still use beepers abroad, let us know what your infrastructure looks like. But over here, there's two networks. As far as I could tell, I'm sure there's more, right? But the two that I found, one is like a broadcast protocol. So it just broadcasts these messages, these beeps. And then your phone will pick that broadcast up and say, oh, okay, look, here's your message, right? Oh. Um, and then another one is like an encrypted. And I think those, those are used by doctors and so on. You can't do like cell phone tower tracing no. on a beeper? Like if you They're one way. It's only receive, but I, so it's receive. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So the beeper doesn't connect to the tower and say, "I'm here." If you have anything on the network for me, send it here to this tower. Yep. That's that's sort of a cell phone works in a dumbed down version. A beeper just hits every tower, sends it out, and whatever lucky tower happened to hit the beeper, the beeper just pulls it down. But th there's no relay back to the tower that says, "I got the message. Thank you. Stop." It just broadcasts exactly. it across everywhere. That's crazy. 
I mean, I guess it's easy to figure out, but I just never thought of it that way. We are extremely happy to partner with DeleteMe. Not only is DeleteMe a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used DeleteMe long before starting the podcast because DeleteMe's proven track record of removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of DeleteMe convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, you know, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit card, and even stealing your tax refund. DeleteMe is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. DeleteMe removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. DeleteMe has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is really easy to use. Your welcome email gets you started and you submit your information. DeleteMe's experts will find or remove your personal information and the removal process starts and you will receive a detailed DeleteMe report in seven days. And then DeleteMe scans and deletes your information all year long. DeleteMe's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with DeleteMe, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. Go to joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service that helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20, FED20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector and I are very excited to be working with Drata once again. When do you have insight into your company's compliance, security, and risk postures? If it's right before an audit, you're in the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Norton, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it is to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed get 10% off Drata and waived implementation fees. Go to drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Again, Drata. D-R-A-T-A dot com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Please support Drata. It helps Hacker and the Fed if you support our sponsors. They are a great company to work with. They are supporting our efforts to make cyber more secure. All right. Next story. 
Black Hat hacker exposes real identity after infecting his own computer with oh, malware. Um, so uh, Las Citrix, uh, the threat actor who is active on the Russian-speaking cr criminal forums since 2020, offering access to his hacked companies uh, and info-stealing logs from active infections. Um, he was observed hacking into organizations and compromising Citrix, VPNs, and RDP services to sell illicit accesses as careless enough to infect his own computer with the information stealer. Uh, and then a security company found him that way. You know, this shit happens more often than you think. We caught a couple of guys when I was in the FBI doing the very same thing. Get out of here. Yeah, because so when I got into cybercrime in the Bureau, it was starting to move over into like a, uh, a sort of a cybercrime for service. Um, and there was more and more guys out there, especially in like Eastern Europe and all that, were making like GUI-based hacking software. So they'd sell it for 40 bucks um, and, you know, sell it to kids on the internet and they would pay 40 bucks and then they could log in and they could just push button hack thing to things. So a lot of times they would test it out. And the first one they would do would be on like a, a, a computer in their own house to see if it worked. Yeah. So, so they, you just look into the logs, you find the first one. There he is. Yeah, you're right. I've seen that so many times in in other scenarios when I was a bad guy and I would break into, let's say, um, a bad actor's uh, infrastructure, like let's say botnet infrastructure. And one of the first systems you would see there would be theirs as well. Like they would include themselves in like, uh, like a CNC, a command and control. And instead of like hosting the command and control somewhere else outside of their internal network, for example, they would just be lazy and run it on their own computer. And then control the botnets from there, and then probably proxy it or relay it through IRC somewhere. I, I have to say, like I, I'm, I'm not surprised. And big shout out to Hudson Rock. These guys, these guys that found this, um, you know, they've they've got a unique ex, uh, data set where they could see stuff like this. And I've always wondered, and I, I'm glad you brought it up, Chris, because I've always wondered, have you been able to convict people like this in in these kind of situations? I know you mentioned that a moment ago, but if you were to guess or guesstimate. Um, like, how often does this happen? Is this something you see a couple times a year? Yeah, no, it happens quite a bit. So this one's a little unique, and I want to get into asking you. I don't want to answer your okay. question with a question, but let, let's get into sure. it a little bit because you brought it up. Okay. So like you said, there's a cybersecurity company, and I'm not going to say the name. Um, you guys can read about it in the article. They found this. They found this information. Um, and then in the article, they say that they explored the cyber criminal's computer, which had been used to penetrate uh, intrusions at hundreds of companies. Uh, and the computer contained employee credentials at almost 300 organizations, and the browser stored corporate credentials used to perform hacks. Um, further analysis of the threat actor's computer also helped the cybersecurity firm discover the real identity of the location, including his address, phone number, and other incriminating evidence, such as his QTOX and uh, other messages from other ransomware groups. Now, let me ask you this. You find the a key that says burglar's house. Somebody breaks into a house and you find a key that says burglar's house. Do you then have the right to then go and take that key, unlock his front door and go in and find all his burglary tools and the stuff he stole inside the house? Uh, no. Okay. At that point you would, you would just inform law enforcement and have them do the thing. So what's the difference here? Well, if you look at the platform that's being used here, right? Without going into detail. But the platform that's being used here essentially ingests uh, information that's been exfiltrated from an info stealer. Okay. And so all you have to do is log into the platform and start looking for different things. 
In this case, the people using the platform identified that one of the victims was an attacker himself. This would be more like they found pictures of the inside of the house. Absolutely. And that's, that's identified. Exactly that, that's the difference here. Okay. I can buy yeah. that. So, yeah. So the security company in this, in this scenario did not like log into his computer, for example. Okay. Um, what they ended up seeing was like the pictures of it that was somebody posted somewhere on Facebook. He example. took a video inside his own house of all these yep. stolen credentials and all these burglary tools and all that. And then <laughs> that video got leaked out onto this repository. And then this, this security company found that video of that identified all this stuff inside his house. Yeah. If you want to visualize, visualize it that way, yeah. I think that's a, that's it's a metaphor, a good one. but, uh, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good metaphor. Cause I think that's exactly what happened here. All right. Then I'm I'm fine that so you know let, let's uh, you know I was a little worried that they you know explored the cyber criminal's computer as the article states. Oh no, that's gonna be a no no. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely committing some sort of crime somewhere, right? Uh, in some sort of country, like let's say this guy's sitting in uh, you know a computer uh, on a computer somewhere in a different country. It's not a, against the United States law to to look around his computer, but it certainly it would yeah. be difficult to use that evidence against him. Hmm. Well, that, that brings me up to like the last main point of this article, right? Which is the company that found that they plan to move forward um, with providing the evidence to law enforcement, to the relevant law enforcement authorities. Okay, so let's say you get an email from the company. Say, they say, hey, look, Chris, we, uh, uh, we found, and this, uh, this is, of course, you and back in the FBI, right? Sure. You get an email that says, hey, Chris, uh, we were doing some, you know, some information gathering and looking at the platform and we identified that one of the so-called victims is actually an adversary himself. Uh, we found a whole bunch of evidence that he's compromised 300 organizations, including government agencies. Uh, here's everything. All right. Can you actually use any of that or no? Um, sure. So if that organization has, uh, has a U.S. nexus, let's say the bad guys in the U.S., if the mm -hmm. bad guys in the U.S., it's a little bit more difficult. But if the victims or some of the victims are in the U.S., then, yeah, you certainly mm -hmm. can open an investigation then. Um, ah, okay. And then I would take that in information, go and interview the companies. Did you have a breach? Um, mm -hmm. Are these your credentials? Are these, you know, these true logins yours? Let's look back and let's let's try to find some some evidence that this is all real. Uh, and then uh, once that is all, uh, you know, pieced together, um, I'm hopping on a plane and going over to whatever country this is and yeah. sitting down with their cyber cops and explaining what the case I have. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. that. That's definitely a good uh, background because sometimes I wonder if you just randomly get evidence, can you can you do anything with it? And of course, you, you know the approach here would be, yeah, you would look at first confirming it, validating it, uh, speaking with the potential victims, and then seeing if you can actually find evidence of entry. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, if someone comes and says, "I, you know, hacked into this." Uh, and mm -hmm. this is what I found, you know, you were going to get lawyers involved pretty quick. The prosecutor is going to come over. Can you know, can we like, like, what do you want to do about this? How can we get this information? Um, you can just put it in as like source material. A source has provided you that information. I know that's very sensitive today to talk about FBI sources. Um, <laughs> yes. But, but, you know, that, that you can get the information in somehow. Now, whether it's usable in court, that will be an argument between the prosecutor and the defense attorney. Uh, but but it, it's good enough to, at, you know, the facts in this case, um, you know, they change from case to case, you know, to, to get it to a point where um, you can definitely open a full investigation into it. Gotcha. Well, I think from, from my perspective, at least, I look at the story, I think it, it really underscores the importance of threat intelligence. I mean, kind of tying back to the, the Google slash virus total story a little, little while ago, 
where we saw you know organizations from around the world and researchers from around the world participating in that community. Um, but yeah, the, it's it's very important for you know threat intel to, to be a thing, and of course the role it could play in identifying and tracking threat actors. So big shout out to I, I want to give a shout out to the threat intel community. Um, they're very busy. They're constantly pushing out content. And I, I think that a lot of those guys are unpaid. They're just researchers. They're hobbyists. So big shout out to them. And then hopefully, uh, you know, we could, we could highlight more of their stories moving forward. Yeah. Follow-up story here, Hector. IT security analyst oh. jailed for impersonating a hacker in his own company. We did this story a few weeks ago, but now there's some follow-up. So uh, mm. 28-year-old former IT security analyst uh, at an English company was sentenced to three years three years for deceiving the company to extort money. Uh, in February of 2018, he impersonated a ransomware group. So his company was attacked. Uh, a ransomware came in and he added on a secondary attack to the company uh, where he got into some of the senior members' emails accounts about over 300 times. Uh, he modified the ransom note from the ransomware attacker and put his own payment address in there, so demanding money. Um, so he <laughs> saw you know, a kind of man-in-the-middle attack, a ransomware attack on his company. Wow. Um, so, but then the company went back and did some investigation and found out that the unauthorized access into the emails to the, the higher up echelon of the company really came from this guy's home address. So it kind of opened wow. up that whole investigation. Um, and we, and again, we covered this story before, but just a little follow up the three years for doing this. So, wow. You know, there's a lot, I think we may even mention it in the intro, but inside of threats, when we see the stories that come out from inside threats that are caught, I don't know, from, from, from my perspective, the way I look at it, I'm like, wow, some of these are pretty dumb. Um, they're dead giveaways. And you brought up a good point. And that is, well, these are just the ones that, that we're seeing. These are the ones that are just being caught. I'm, I can imagine the level of sophistication of other insider threats out there that are getting away with it. So pretty scary stuff to think about. Yeah, the low-hanging fruit. Those are the ones we're getting caught. Now, I don't really know what tipped them off to start looking into some of the hacks, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand, you know, I, I, why he accessed the senior members of the company's emails. Sure. Uh, I think that really was the tipping point. If he just changed the inbound communication and put his wallet address for his crypto payment on mm -hmm. there, I don't know if he would have gotten caught. Maybe. He doesn't sound like the brightest guy. No. I mean, well, let's look at it. Let's look at it from... From the, the let's, let's 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 attack path it right. All right. Okay. So okay, a ransomware takes place. Some systems are compromised. Exfiltration takes place. Now there's a ransom note. The ransom note comes in. He's able to modify the address. Now if it's like a drive-by ransomware, okay, it, this probably would have worked out in his favor. But if the ransomware group are persistent and they're constantly contacting the business in some way, emails, phone calls, etc. At some point, the discrepancy in the address is still going to come up in question. Well, and the payment. I, I'm guessing yeah. what his plan was is, let's say the ransomware group was demanding fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. He then changed it to a hundred thousand dollars, and mm -hmm. I, I would guess that he would then pay the ransomware group fifty thousand dollars to get the key to unlock it, and he would pocket the fifty. I would guess that's the way he's doing it. Maybe not, but I tell you, it's. Uh, I would love to learn more details about this, but hey, he got sentenced. I hope he learned his lesson. He had a great opportunity to have a great career ahead of him. And, you know, mistakes happen. We make mistakes. I made mistakes. Hopefully um, he could come back from this. Yeah, but, you know, you've also used the lesson to uh, tell the audience that you know, just don't do stupid shit like this. It's not worth it. 100%.
So I know this has been a Google heavy stories this week. We got another one, uh, and nothing against Google. The Google's great. We 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 praise Google when we see good things, like them putting money into cybersecurity and cybersecurity education. But uh, this week, uh, Google and Apple uh, seem to be in a little bit of a fight because Google says Apple employee found a zero day but didn't report it. So Google fixed a zero day in their Chrome browser that was found by an Apple employee. Uh, the bug was originally found by an Apple employee who was participating in a capture the flag hacking competition in March. Um, the employees, you know, did not immediately report the bug, um, which at the time was a zero day, meaning that Google wasn't aware of the bug and, and wouldn't be able to patch it. It was actually somebody else that was part of the capture the flag that reported it. Yeah, that's a, this is a tough one. Okay, so as someone that has done research a lot, and I would love to do more um, uh, in, in the coming months, but here's the situation: you find a bug. The process of finding a bug itself could be lengthy. It could take you months. It could take you days, weeks. It could take you years um, following a trail. Now, once you've found the bug, the next step is trying to create an attack path, uh, a, a means where you could escalate privileges or have the bug do something in a way that would grant you privileges that you wouldn't have had otherwise if the bug didn't exist. Okay. Well, let me, many let me stop you right there. If it sure. if you find a bug and it can't yeah. be exploited in some sort of way, is it still a bug or is it something else? No, it's still a bug. It's still an issue that needs to be addressed. Okay. Okay. So if you find a way to crash your browser consistently, there's a bug there. There's a problem there that needs to be addressed. And that should be reported. Do you think at that point, or do you find do you have to find a way to exploit it before you report it? If, if it's a normal user, uh, a non-security-minded folk, or a non-security researcher, right? Let's say one of our audience members says, okay, I know of a bug. I found it. I can, I can consistently repeat it. It's repetitive. So I need to report this, and they'll probably just open up a ticket with Google in this case, and move on with their lives. From a security researcher's perspective, they're like, well, wait, hold on. I have a bug. I could probably turn this into... A proof of concept, an exploit, maybe a blog post, maybe do a podcast episode, or maybe just get a CV out of it, get some sort of recognition. Like there's more to it. Well, also payment. I mean, if if you can exploit it in a way to show it's more dangerous, then do, isn't there as far as a bug bounty program? It's advantageous for you. It's advantageous all those things you mentioned to get a blog post, all that out of it. But the payment is also going to be higher. A hundred percent. So you have to weigh that against this bug that in this browser that uh, millions of people are using. You're just sitting on, you know, maybe somebody else that is found that one, you know, too, and they're you know weeks ahead of you in finding an exploit. Um, is is it not a part of like a mindset? Say, oh, as soon as you find it, you should let Google know. Using your what you just said right now is very important. I mean, the, you made some very good points there, and that is that yes, if there is a bug bounty program, okay. Then the researcher at that point wants to take the bug and try to develop it in a way that could prove the concept, okay? And obviously, if you have a working proof of concept exploit, you will get a higher bounty and or recognition rather than just submitting any bug that you find, at least from the security researcher's perspective. I mean, e even when we look at what he said, I mean, he he's quoted from, you know, a conversation on Discord where he says, hey, it took me two weeks working on it full time to, to root cause, write the exploit, and write up the issue such, such that it can be fixed. But then, of course, at some point, someone else recognized that the research he was doing um, you know, was indeed a zero day, and they reported it. So it makes him look bad, okay? But there's also some more context. Uh, according to him, you know, apparently, 
he had reported the bug upstream to his manager at Apple, and the manager was just out of office. Now, I find this the most interesting part because if you look on like uh, Hacker News, uh, if you look at some of the the other commentary online, uh, Twitter, Reddit, etc., there's been some heated debates about this, right? There are folks that are full disclosure. There are folks that, uh, and by the way, full disclosure is you find a bug and you just throw it out there for the world to see prior to the vendor having a chance to fix it, okay? Uh, there were other folks that were like, wait, why did it take Apple three months plus to get back to Google or give a give this researcher the green light to report it, okay? Like, there's so many issues with this conver- this piece of the conversation that I, I think we're going to leave it to the audience. Yeah, but that, that comment right there. So just like before when we, mm-hmm. the, the article said Google exposed all those military e- email addresses, yeah, Google didn't expose it. Google, the company, did not get together and expose it. One guy made a mistake. Uh, yeah. Just like, you know, Apple didn't tell Google about it. No, Apple, not one guy didn't mm-hmm. report it the proper way or didn't or tried to just leave it to his boss. And, you know, it's not an entire company policy that says, hey, if we find a flaw in Google, don't report it. That's not Apple's policy. So but I don't like when one employee makes a decision and it's labeled, you know, the entire company's out to get them. That's right. I mean, that is a good point. So, you know, what the, the outcome of this whole thing and, and wherever they fall and in the audience, I'd love to have a debate if anybody wants to email in on this one. Um, yes. The bug was fixed uh, on March 29th. And according to the bug report, Google decided to award $10,000 as a bug bounty to the person who reported it, not the person who found it, the person that reported it. Let's talk about ethics there. Do you think the guy that reported it is going to give the, the guy that found it some bread? <laughs> no, I think this guy's. If this guy's on Apple's uh, threat threat team, I think he's doing all right. You know that I, I think probably you know some of these internal capture the flag competitions and all that. Um, you know, if this guy keeps the ten thousand, doesn't like give it to charity or something like that, he might get some shit. But you know, I think folks will understand. <laughs> let me go. Let me ask you a little list. So, kind of as, as I put out that whole pattern of things, is yeah. it on these people to tell Google that they have a flaw? It's Google's thing. It's Google's product. Why is it on security researchers to tell them when they have a flaw or they have a bug in it? There's no law that states that if you identify a vulnerability, you have to report it to the vendor. Google's making making millions, if not hundreds of millions off of this. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it's on them. They should find these bugs. They should pay more people to find, you know, internal people to find the bugs. Why is it, you know, I, I, I go either way on it. You know, I think I think bugs, you know, is we, we should all be good corporate citizens and, and good citizens in cybersecurity. And if there's a flaw out there, they can be used to, you know, make us all vulnerable to something. It should be reported. But I can see the other side where these guys are like, it's not my responsibility to tell Google this shit's broken. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I just want to highlight something for Google. They had, they do have Project Zero, and they have some of the smartest people on the planet, you know, combing through and auditing their source code all day, every day. So big shout out to them. Uh, but some of these bugs will go underneath the radar. They will definitely fly under the radar, and it'll take an external researcher to find it. And I'll be honest with you, if if we're talking about something like a remote command execution. Um, or something similar where privileges will be dropped um, or accessed by an adversary remotely with very little interaction. I'll be honest with you, $10,000 is not enough. Ten grand for something like that in the black market would go for much more. You know that. So that, that's, that, that to me was the interesting piece. That, yes, the, the guy that didn't find it was paid the bounty because he reported it. But then I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the, the actual payment. I'm like, ten grand. That's uh, That seems a little bit low for... Uh, a browser crash that, that may lead to um, a potential escalation of privileges. 
but that's that's neither here nor there, I guess. You got me interested. In, uh, sorry, I'm in a very inquisitive mood right now. Um, Project Zero, Google's threat hunting team. Um, sure. It goes through all their code and finds the things. And you said some of them go under the radar, and these guys are the smartest people in the world. And I agree with all that. Mm-hmm. Why do they miss some of them that son? Is it because they're sort of all come up with the same methodology and they're indoctrinated mm-hmm. into a, a methodology and this is the way we do it? These are the tools we use and it needs somebody outside using a separate set of tools or a separate mindset. Is, is that sort of why it slips through or what's your what's your thoughts and feelings on that? Wow, that's you know what? That's that's a fantastic set of questions. Um, so so here's my thoughts on that. I was super excited when I saw Google hiring like Tavis O or Tavis Romandi. I think he's, I consider him one of the top hackers on the planet. They've also hired a bunch of other like really talented reverse engineers and researchers and programmers. Some, some, some brilliant minds, some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. Okay. I think that those guys all come in with their own methodologies, their own tools, their own techniques, their own capabilities. And then at some point, the team grows. But the team grows, and they're learning and absorbing those methodologies. Well, they're only they're hiring people too that probably, you know, if, if I have come in with a certain methodology, and you, yeah. you know, I'm going to hire someone that kind of thinks the way I think. Yeah, I mean, so let's look at the scenario. I, I can't speak. Uh, obviously, we not we don't work there. Yeah, yeah. That this team, is all right? just thoughts. Yeah. But let, so let's imagine. Let's let's look at Tavis O, for example. Brilliant guy. They bring him in. They bring him in exactly because he thinks outside the box. You got to look at his vulnerability reports. They're all outside the box kind of exploits. They bring him in, you know, he starts building a team, he starts doing research, and now the team that they're filling up, they're filling these roles to work underneath him or with him. Now, these people are learning his methodology. He's not going to have 100% full coverage. So you would think that they would try to get others like him to expand, right, different coverage um, or expand to the point where they get as much coverage as possible. So I think, going back to what what you're saying with your question or kind of implying is that it's possible that as this security team, you know, expands and more folks are coming in, they're probably melding methodologies together and they may be missing stuff. But there's, there's a flip side to that, too. Let's assume that's not the case. Let's assume that they have, you know, Project Zero has 50 of the top minds on the planet and all 50 have different methodologies and different capabilities and different tools. OK. All right. Fantastic. We also have to keep in mind that the Chrome code base is likely to be, you know, millions upon millions of lines of code. And the more lines of code of code you add every day, you're expanding the attack surface, you're adding new features. Those features are probably not thoroughly tested. And if they were tested, it was probably through the development process, DevOps Sec or DevOps Security. Um, you know, there's probably a lot that goes there, that happens there, but there's still going to be stuff that's missed. So what does that tell you? If a company like Google that has a huge development teams and they have all sorts of security policies and security tools internally, and they're hiring those brilliant minds in security, and they're still missing bugs, then what does that really tell you about you know everybody else um, where we stand? I mean, probably the biggest problem is Google cut off their internet this week, so they can't use it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm glad you brought it up. I would love to hear the feedback from those in that pilot that are now disconnected from Google's headquarters. <laughs> They're probably loving it. They're probably loving it. Oh, yeah. So, the real bitch would be if you're a work from home and they cut your internet mm. off. That would be, that would be <laughs> Imagine <difficult>. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, the biggest It reminds stroke. me of Silicon Valley when they put you up on the roof. <laughs> Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, yeah. They put they, they started putting Hulu put started putting or Huli started putting you know workers they just wanted on the books 
not to work other, another place, put them on the roof. So, yeah, we're going to have you work from home, but we're going to cut your internet off. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> so what are you going to do? Just walk around <laughs> yeah. like that movie. Remember when that movie Midnight Express where they had all the crazy people walking around in a circle? Yeah. That's going to be a bunch of Google employees that are at home disconnected from the yeah. world. So big shout out, Microsoft Cybersecurity Analysis Professional Certificate. We, uh, we, um, a lot of listeners reach in and say, hey, what, what should you do? What's the, you know, how should we get started? Um, you know, this is a yeah. beginner level certificate. They're not paying Hacker in the Fed anything for this. It's just when something new comes out there, we like to shout out and give the audience, you know, the, another avenue to explore and look at it. We're not, you know, saying this is the greatest thing. We've never used it. Uh, just telling you guys that it's available out there. It's a, uh, sure. it's a six-month course where you work about 10 hours a week in a flexible schedule. Um, you know, you'll learn about, you know, cybersecurity landscape and core concepts mm -hmm. and, you know, and develop and implement threat mitigation strategies. Um, really, they're saying the skills you're going to leave with is uh, network security, cloud computing security, penetration testing, um, computer security, uh, incident response, and threat nice. mitigation. Um, really, you know, you're not going to be an expert in the field. This is a baseline, uh, like I said, mm -hmm. beginner level, but, you know. It gives the, you know, if you're out there, you're looking for a certif certificate, you know, might explore this one. Yeah. I mean, you know, we saw Google come out with something similar not that long ago. And we've seen companies like IBM and uh, I believe Oracle, but I think IBM for sure, they came out with something similar as well. These entry level cybersecurity uh, courses with certificates. So you get a nice certificate afterwards. Um, you can print that out, put that in your resume. Um, it'll help with the hiring process, believe it or not. Those things do help. Because it, it, you know, it's not necessarily like I've never been one to like believe in certificates as anything other than just what they are. Um, but I've spoken to a lot of folks that um, do hiring, and you know, I've asked them. So, does do certificates actually help with the hiring process? And they're like, well, what it tells us is a few things. It it helps us understand that the person likely can pay attention to detail because a lot of, a lot of these courses are, are big blocks of text. And so you have to read through these texts and start picking out the important details, very similar to like college and so on, right? So it, it tells us that they're, they're at least capable of, of, you know, being able to read through something and understand it and then have takeaways. Okay, cool. It also tells us that they, they could be dedicated to a course of six months, 10 hours a week. We, you know, that's, that's good for us. We want, we want dedicated people that we know that we can put them on a project and they'll complete it. You know, so certificates do have positive, especially if, if you're just getting into cybersecurity, you get something like this, you do the Google one, you go to Coursera, do the IBM one. Now you have three entry-level certificates. Now you can start moving up in the game. So uh, I think it's cool. Big shout out to Microsoft for putting this together. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, you know, this is a good thing. Your kids are in high school interested in computers, computer security, um, you know, cybersecurity and that sort of thing. Yeah. Maybe this is a, a good way to, of whether they want to, you know, go to college and study this, you know, or mm -hmm. if they want to learn a little extra over the summer, keep them busy. Good entry level position. So. Hector, this week we kind of lost uh, um, we lost somebody in cybersecurity. Kevin Mitnick died. Um, yeah, that was kind of shocking to me. And, you know, Kevin Mitnick has a personality that uh, some people love, some people hated. You know, I think at the very beginning, a lot of people, you know, kind of didn't like Kevin. Um, he was arrested at 16 uh, for unauthorized access to a computer network in 1979. Um, he broke into the ARC, which is a computer system for the Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC. Um, uh, and then uh, sort of after those charges, he did 12 months in prison, um, release on supervised release, but then he 
then broke into Pacific Bell and a couple others. And then an arrest warrant was put out for him and he was a fugitive for two and a half years. Um, you know, and then finally he was sentenced to 46 months in prison for that plus 22 months uh, for violating the terms of his first one. And he did a bunch of hacks and was caught with a bunch of uh, phone freaking stuff when he got finally got arrested. Um, Kevin was a big personality and um, I, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't know Kevin well, but I'd done a few things with him. I did a thing on television more than once. I did a couple events with him um, and we certainly knew each other back and forth. Um, yeah. Just surprising to me that he's, he, that he passed away. Um, I guess he had pancreatic cancer and he died at 59. And so uh, I didn't want it to pass without just mentioning it on the show that, you know, Kevin Mignick was a, a personality in cybersecurity um, and he had turned his life around and had some cybersecurity companies here at the end um, and was trying to do his best to spread the word about, you know, having secure things. Oh yeah. hundred percent, man. I, I, I have to say that, you know, he was definitely a big player in cybersecurity. A lot of people recognize him. He put a lot of awareness. That's, that's very important to me. When I was young and dumb and I was, you know, the bad guy, you know, I remember in the beginning, I was a young kid and I was, I would kind of look up to him. And I, I remember the whole free Kevin uh, uh, campaign. That was a big thing. You know, websites getting hacked and you see like a free Kevin uh, banner on the website of the target website uh, of the target rather. And then later on in life, you know, I was I would, I would look at his story and the stories of, of the masters of deception and Legion of Doom and all these guys and definitely had inspiration from them. You know, bigger loss and, you know, my condolences to his family. I mean, it seems like he had a big, beautiful family. A lot of people... Um, you know, were involved in his life, and they put together a really beautiful memorial. Um, the, the obituary, I read it, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, RIP to him, man, and, and I hope his family's okay. It's a tough loss, always. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I really don't know what to say, but, uh, you know, just didn't want it to pass. So, so Kevin, uh, yeah. thanks for, you know, uh, sorry you uh, you were a bad guy at the beginning, but uh, great that you turned your life around and realized the the better, so... Big props to the, the turning your life around there at the end. Hector, we had a few listeners write questions last week, and we could, didn't get to them. Uh, we promised we would get to them this week. So Pete, Alonzo, and Ethan, your questions are going are gonna to be answered today. Uh, if you have questions for Hector and I, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Uh, we love your questions, and we love your feedback. So send them on in. So Hector, let's start with Pete. He says, yo, Thank you guys for keeping the show not just informative, but entertaining as well. I'm curious how you would approach working on this question I was asked today. How would you go about verifying that software is safe from a production environment with a little specific tooling as possible? Uh, could you do a successful living off the land reverse engineering of a given binary? If not, what would be the resources you would need to feel comfortable for you to get the job done well? You can't really do something like this that you're asking without uh, uh, extensive tooling and, and kind of, you know, a process that, you know, may, may be super lengthy, but it, it could be. Um, there's going to be a lot of work in order for you to kind of validate whether or not the software that you're kind of looking at or you want to bring into production is safe for production. The reality is that... Um, Unless you do the following, uh, you probably won't have enough information to make the determination. So I'll kind of start off with some of my points here, and I, and I wrote them down for you because I really wanted to like expand this as much as possible and give you some perspective. 
if you have the opportunity to access the source code for that software, then you would be able to do a code review, right? So code review is probably the first step, assuming that your vendor is willing to give you access to source code. Um, that's going to be very extensive in terms of time and, and resources. Now you have to look for vulnerabilities or backdoors, and this takes this takes time. You know, if you go beyond that, let's say you do get access to the source code. Uh, now you can do things like static analysis. You can use static analysis tools, which are free. Uh, many are free. Uh, some of the better ones are, at least, um, to automatically scan the code for uh, for potential vulnerabilities. Um, and they could identify issues that, that might have been missed during a manual code review. My favorite, one of the things that I like doing is dynamic analysis. And there's some really good dynamic analysis tools. Um, they're very expensive, unfortunately. Um, but they allow you to essentially run the, the code in an environment. And you could analyze all sorts of things like syscalls and um, signals and everything in between, you know, while the application is running. And you could actually start to identify potential areas of concern. Then you have fuzzing. You have fuzzing, which basically, you know, you would brute force parameters and variables um, and the functionality of the application uh, until you make a crash. Assuming you can make a crash. Now, depending on the crash that you get, it'll tell you a lot about the application, how it was uh, developed. And uh, and this, of course, works if you don't have source code, right? So if, if you're just dealing with a binary, then fuzzing will probably help you. Uh, but it's going to be time uh, extensive. And, okay, I think this is a good one here for you, dependency checks. Uh, you know, checking all third-party libraries and components, um, that really goes a long way. I mentioned earlier when I was talking with Chris about uh, the SBOM or Software Bill of Materials. Uh, it's basically, depending on, on how it's developed or put together, it could be as simple as a very, like, uh, like a bullet list, right, of software and libraries that are being used by the application, or it could be more complex, you know, dependencies, descriptions, et cetera, et cetera specific version numbers, you name it. Um, and then, of course, finally, I would say threat modeling. By threat modeling, you'll be able to identify potential threats and vulnerabilities in the software. Um, this really does, though, un it involves understanding how the software works and what assets it protects and doesn't. Okay, kind, of, kind of similar to how you do a tabletop exercise. You sit down and you start putting together a scenario. And, okay, well, what's the worst case if this happens or X happens or Y happens? Based off the answers that you get during that process, you can start to identify potential issues with, with the software or environment, okay? It gets more complex than that. You know, you have things like disassembly, debugging, decompilation, uh, you, you know, network analysis. So I guess my point here, my friend, is that um, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of resources. And it's not going to be easy for you to just say, okay, yeah, this is safe to use, um, unless you kind of, thoroughly expands upon the application and, and, and you know, have as much coverage as possible. Otherwise, you're not going to have enough information to make the determination. And so I hope that helps. I hope, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that you probably were, were hoping for something else, a different response, but... A magic button. A mad, yeah, unfortunately, that does not exist. So I, I think for my two cents on the whole thing, it, it comes from experience. Um, yeah. If you, you know, you'll know when it's right based on, you know, your umpty ump years of experience. If you have a manager or something like that that's trying to push you and you don't feel comfortable, don't sign off on it. As a security expert, you know, you'll know when you, it's just I'm not putting my name on this. And, and to be honest with you, your reputation means a lot. Um, so don't allow someone to force you to sign something or force you into something and saying, you know, this is good enough. Um, you know, 
just push back on it uh, is the big thing. Sure. So, Hector, Alonzo would like to know, child exploitation has been in the news a lot recently, and I think uh, that everyone can agree that this is one of, if not the most uh, horrendous acts imaginable. Um, some companies or governments uh, may be able to scan our devices looking for this material. Uh, to seal man the case, uh, we would ensure another welcome to video never happens, but there will always be collateral damage for the father who lost access to all his Google accounts because of photos he provided to a doctor. Furthermore, what recommendations would you give to parents of young children when it comes to them accessing the internet? And at what age would you think kids should access smart devices uh, and the entirety of the internet? So let me, let me go first on this one, Hector. So sure. I agree. I've worked this violation when I was in the FBI um, that, that child exploitation, or they call them CSAM now, um, is one of the worst, worst possible things po out there. So that, that might kind of, you know, having worked these cases and being a part of these cases um, and, and seeing the damage that it causes, that probably taints my opinion on this. Should companies and governments be able to look through your devices for the material? So the way, the easiest way to go through and find this material is called a hash. And a hash is like a fingerprint for a file. Um, it takes an entire file and, the, and it runs it through a one-way algorithm and comes up with a, a very long number. Um, and that's the unique number for that file. And if you change just one pixel or inside that inside that image file, it changes that fingerprint completely. It changes that number to a whole different number. Um, so one way they do it is the, the FBI and, and, and other law enforcement agencies around the world have come up with these CSAM hash numbers. Uh, meaning that they know this is a child exploitation picture. Um, they know the it's a child in it. They've identified the person and that the person was a child. Uh, uh, the doctors have identified that they're being sexually exploited. Um, and so that file is added to a, a CSAM known hash file. And then so what companies could do is then go through all the files in your, compu in your computer, your device, provide a hash for every file, and if one of those hashes matches these known CSAM hash files, then it can be flagged that your file is uh, contains you know child exploitation. Um, that's not them looking at your files. They're not coming through with it. They're not. They're not looking at the files and determining each file whether it's a child exploitation picture or not. It's it's coming up with a fingerprint and whether those fingerprints match. Um, I don't think that is crazy, but it definitely opens the door to companies and governments overextending what they can do on your devices and that's scary it, it, it's it's allowing the camel to get his nose in the tent for a good cause but what's the next thing uh, what's the next thing we're going to start looking through on these devices you know if you have pictures of guns uh if you you know whatever hot button topic there is now um that it's not illegal for you to have pictures of guns but maybe one day it is will be um, so I, I don't like the idea of it, even though I, you know, I'm a father of two. I think child exploitation pictures are the worst possible things that they can do. Taking a child's innocence away, taking a child's childhood away is horrific. Absolutely horrific. But do we give up our right for privacy in order to, in order to do that? That's a tough question. It's really tough. Uh, so, so I think that's kind of where I stand. Just, you know, coming emotionally out of it, Hector, where, where are you at with this? Yeah, I mean, I think we aligned very much. Um, I think my concerns really is on the, the, the technology portion of it. Scanning user devices can be seen as, as a violation or invasion of privacy. Uh, and, and I just want to point out, it's kind of like a, like a, a small joke here, but 
depending on who you ask here in this country, in the United States, uh, they may re- retort with, well, the word privacy is not in the Constitution. Uh, but that's besides the point. I just want to throw that out there. The next issue is going to be accuracy. This is, you know, back in two, 2021, um, Apple's um, hashing system, what they were using for um, kind of identifying potentially bad images, uh, they were actually using something called NeuroHash. But they were able to create a collision um, between um, images or between files. And collisions, essentially, in this case, would be, well, what if there's a picture that's a known bad picture? And not to go into details, but it's a bad picture. And when you pass the picture or file through uh, NeuroHash, in this case, um, it would generate a hash, a, a cryptographic hash, that would basically be like a fingerprint for a person. All right, but in this case, for that file. Now, when you create a collision, uh, it's basically the, the, the I would say the, the act of creating a file in such a way that it it results in the same exact cryptographic hash as the original image. It'd be like two people having the same exact fingerprint. That's exactly right. And so when you have that take place, and you know there's some jerks out there. You know there's some jerks out there, Chris. Um, if they know the hash of a bad image and they're able to identify a collision, and then they go on Discord and start blasting that image. And, and from your perspective, like, what the hell is this? But now you're going to have that image cast on your device, and then your device is going to ping somewhere, somebody somewhere, saying, hey, by the way, we just found a bad image on this guy's cache folder. You know, this is his name and, and identifier number, right? Prescriber number, uh, subscriber number, sorry. But how, how big were these files in the collisions? Because I've heard about hash collisions for, you know, 20 years. And, you know, back in the day, it was just very, very tiny files that didn't even have, you know, human readable information. They were like 9 to 12 bits in size. Yeah, well, it depends, right? It depends on it depends on the algorithm. It depends on, um, you know, what what led to the to the hash collision. In some cases, I've seen collision files be as big as you know, uh, several hundred megabytes. Really, right? Because they, they needed to they needed to make a file in a way that kind of looked like or could generate the same hash. And by the way, I sent sent you a link here um, on the story from that uh, from that Apple neural hash collision. All right, I'll add that for the audience. So, audience, if All you right. want to read that story, it's it's in the description. Awesome. Yeah. So, so privacy is obvious issue here. If there's some sort of mechanism on your device scanning files, my concern would be, well, if there's ever a radical change in this country or, or abroad, can that mechanism be used to scan for other things? Hashes for other kind of stuff, or maybe use AI to identify guns. Like you, you brought up a really good example. And then, of course, security. Um, you know, security, whatever mechanism this is that will be scanning your file system for files for these bad hashes, um, will have to be developed by someone. And humans tend to make mistakes. And so the, the mechanism itself, software, service, whatever it is, is going to expand your attack surface. Now imagine if an attacker identifies a vulnerability in that software and they're able to leverage it to exploit your system. That's problematic, okay? Uh, so that's another issue you have to deal with. So now we have three main points. And finally, uh, the ethical consideration. What's happening with child exploitation is terrible. I do not condone that. And, um, you know, I, I feel that I wish there was a way to really stop this nonsense. But the reality is, is that depending on jurisdiction, depending on where you're at, 
I know in some countries in Europe, they're very privacy first. Um, I know the UK recently has put in, or they're working on implementing laws that would end end-to-end encryption, right? So it's not consistent across Europe. Um, and it's not consistent here in the United States as well. So there's, there's a lot of back and forth on the legal and ethical considerations. And I think that although noble in concept, there's got to be a better way to deal with this. All right. So Ethan's question is, uh, hello, Chris and Hector. I've been a regular listener of the show for many weeks now that I and I, that I really enjoy it. Um, thanks, you guys, for putting it together a little about me. I'm currently working in a software development uh, while I pursue my master's in science, uh, in cybersecurity and information assurance. Uh, originally, your podcast was referred to me by your brother. Well, thank you to his brother, um, who's pursuing the same degree. Um, he is a guy who, oh, he's the guy who sent the story about the lady who had her car stolen at Salt Lake City uh-huh. Airport uh, and used the remote to break into her home. Yeah, that was a great story. Yeah. Thanks for sending Good that story. in, guys. So his question is, uh, I'm somewhat early on in my InfoSec journey, and I have obtained a few certificates. Um, I've put in several applications with the federal agencies because I feel the best place for me to get a start. Uh, The NSA is one that I really had my eye on. And last week, they had me take the CNT network assessment battery. Mm. Um, I don't know if you guys have any familiarity with this, uh, but it was brutal. I'm sorry to hear about that one, uh, Ethan. Um, I have no idea how I did uh, as they provide no scoring feedback, but there were lots of things that I knew on the exam, lots of things I didn't. Do you guys know anything about uh, these aptitude tests and the federal agencies put you through? Uh, I don't know if you're looking for people to destroy the test or if they're trying to hone in on what your specialty might be. Mm. Uh, If you could provide any insight or opinion on this, uh, it would be appreciated. Ethan, I have no insight whatsoever to give you. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, you know, they don't really tell how these scorings work. Um, I know like with the FBI testing, um, like they, they, some of the agencies do a federal, uh, do a, like a, uh, foreign language testing. And that is really a testing to see how proficient you are. And you have to get a certain score to do on these. Um, I know with the NSA, some of the testing is, you know, they want to make sure you know certain things, but I don't think they have expectations that you know everything. So I, I think you're going to be all right. Um, you know, the test is a test. You know, you're going to get a score on it and it's going to you with your application moves forward or not. Um, some of my friends have taken these tests and they've gone and done internships and then worked at the NSA. Um, and I don't think they got hundreds on the test. They didn't leave the test feeling that they got a hundred on it. Um, so, you know, and it, it is also comparable. And, and unfortunately, this is the way it is, even with the FBI, your, your score is compared to the other people taking the test at the same time as you. Um, mm. So if they need certain people um, and, you know, there's, you know, 50 people taking the test and they only need, they need 20 people, they're going to take the top 20. Um, yeah. So you're going to hope that there's other dummies in the room with you. And I agree there. I think I I also don't have any uh, specific knowledge about the CNT networking assessment battery. Now I'm curious. Now I will look into it and go down the rabbit hole. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of these organizations, whether they're in the government or not, they might have some, you know, uh, um, proprietary testing or some sort of, you know, internal surveying system or something. The reality is they're just trying to identify some of your good traits. They're trying to see, one, do you have at the very least, a basic understanding of concepts. That, that goes a long way because if, then, you know, if they bring you on and they have to train you on some of this stuff, um, it's going to cost them time and money. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's 
really what the purpose is about. But also, um, they're also looking to see if, if there's any specific skill sets that are highlighted during this testing. Maybe you're very, very good at reverse engineering. Maybe you have a, such a solid understanding of networking um, and VPN technology that you you outclass the rest of the students there taking a test with you, right? It's pretty cool that, you know, uh, whenever whenever you kind of take one of these, these tests and you're able to kind of see what they're looking at. And I hope you do get a score at some point and I hope that it works out for you. And then finally, you have to remember one thing. That is that these tests uh, are just part of the hiring process, right? I mean, your, your performance in the test is probably going to be very important, but they also consider other factors. Yeah, it's only one part of the whole thing. Yeah. They, they want to see like how you handle stress and anxiety. If you're able to execute within a, time, a timeline, how do you do with interviews? Are you able to communicate? There's one thing I tell folks that are always interested in cybersecurity. Hey, Hector, I want to get to cyber and I want to make you know X amount of money. I think I could do it. I'm like, yeah, you can. But how are you with communication? Can you sit down with someone and explain what TCP IP really is? Can you explain what the three-way handshake is and why is it is even a thing? Um, <clears throat> and so if you're able to explain concepts and you're able to understand concepts and learn concepts, then yeah, that's going to help you towards the hiring process, especially for the NSA. The NSA is a, 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 a top echelon in some, in some ways, and they're going to expect a certain knowledge set or skill set from you in order for you to move forward in your career with them. So those are my thoughts, man. Good luck. Yeah, Ethan, let us know how it goes. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, you reminded me, Hector, my friend started off an interview once uh, for uh, for a technical <laughs> job. And he's like, name an IP address, any ITUB address. And the guy goes, uh, 123.456.78. Oh. He didn't even get to the fourth octet. And uh, and he's like, stop, get out. I don't, I don't care. You know, oh, <laughs> he goes, you man. don't know shit. So that you know what that's a quick drive-by t- <laughs> test right there to get, just get rid of somebody like that. Yeah. So it's a, um, I mean somewhat a little bit of pressure just to name any IP address. If if you were to ask me that question, I'll give you the, the Google DNS IP eight yeah. dot eight dot eight dot eight. Oh, I'd give you four dot four dot four dot four. That's funny. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so Ethan has a second question. I know you had an answer. We talked about this. So he says, "Oh yes, uh, a good one." Uh, can you share your opinion about the Gmail encryption feature that they offer? I've never used it. And I don't know what to make of it. Uh, as I've learned more throughout my security education, it has naturally raised my level of paranoia, uh, and I'm ready to switch to PGP communications. So, Hector, you had some <laughs> thoughts on that. Yeah, and, and we, we actually talked about this on the last episode after we finished recording. And the reason why we, we kind of saved his question for this week is because there's, there's more than one answer. To this question so so really what he's asking here is you know google seems to offer some sort of encryption on email or for the email service is it good you know what's what's your opinion on it right the reality is that google offers at least two different ways to encrypt your emails let's start off with the enterprise version so google has something called um, the google cse or client-side encryption and that is for enterprise accounts. So, for example, if your company, your organization has a website and you host a website through Gmail or Google Workspace, that's what they call it, uh, you could enable client-side encryption for all email going in and out of your organization. Um, and, of course, the plain text ones will still go through. But the point is, uh, if you're emailing other employees at your organization, it will be encrypted. Uh, I kind of want to go into how it works and how it differentiates from what I think uh, our friend here is asking about. So... Google will encrypt the data before it's sent to the server, so it's client-side. 
And it really means that, um, you know, that Google, in this case for the CSE, um, may not hold the keys to encrypting those emails. I've tried to set it up for my organization, and it requires an external key manager or KMS, key management system. And there's a bunch of them online. This entire business is who's a, who their entire business model is storing keys for organizations, for like for email. And they're, they're quite expensive, for sure. Uh, the reality is, is that now that third party is holding your keys. So theoretically, if they're able to gain access or play mad in the middle, they would be able to read your emails. But that's theoretical, right? And it requires multiple steps. Or a government getting a search warrant. A government or a know. government getting a search warrant at, uh, towards the KMS, right? The key management. Um, well, they'd system. have to get two. They'd have to get one for the KMS for the to the key, and then they'd have to get one for the you know email provider to to get it off their system. And it leads me to the second one. So Google also offers confidential mode. You could use it right now today. Log into your Gmail, and you can make a confidential mode email. And what that is will be again an encrypted email that you could share with a third party. Um, you know, basically, you you go, you, you send your email. It's in confidential mode. You can set an expiration date for when the message, um, you know, can be received and or deleted. You can require a passcode for the recipient in order for them to open it, and prevent the recipient from forwarding, copying, copying, printing, or downloading the message. So there are a lot of constraints if they're working within the confines of Gmail. Um, but it would only really work if it's with another Gmail user, right? If you're sending emails externally. Um, you know, they could easily print the email because their client is not going to follow Google's directions here. Um, you could set expiration dates and have all sorts of restrictions. Cool stuff. But here's the thing. Google does not offer end-to-end -end encryption. And because of that, in this scenario with a confidential mode, um, Google is the holder of the keys. Not like the first scenario I provided you where the CSC uh, solution uh, requires some sort of key management system. Uh, in this case, Google is that key management system. So they would be able to read your email in the case of a subpoena. Actor search warrant. You have to get a search warrant to read emails. Oh, sorry. Search yeah. warrant. My bad. Yeah. My bad. I'm not a law enforcement guy, so sometimes I mix it up. My bad. Yeah, I just don't want the information to go out there that all, all they need is a subpoena to read your emails. But to, to, yeah. So think of it like an envelope. An email is like an envelope. To get uh, mm. For a subpoena, I get to read the outside of the envelope, the to, from, where it came from, the date it went through. Uh, mm. Search warrant, I get to read in the letter that's inside the envelope. That's that's interesting. It's, it's cool to hear the different, uh, differentiator there. But yeah, so with either technology, um, you know, someone somewhere may be able to read your emails. I think that, you know, kind of going back to your email uh, where you asked us this question, at the end you said, well, I might just have to move to PGP. Yeah, you may have to. <laughs> Until we get end-to-end -end encrypted emails. We're not, we're not there yet. So a lot of great questions, Hector. Even better oh, yeah. answers. Um, so really appreciate the audience. Again, if you want to get a hold of us, reach us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. If you guys want to get merchandise, find that at hackerinthefed.com. Uh, great response to the open week. Let's keep that going. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, another great conversation. Yeah, it was fun, man. Thanks, thanks for having me as, as always and being here with me. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Cheers. Cheers, brother.